know that we have received love from the Father and the gift of the Son and how we know we did not deserve that. The blood of Christ spilled on our behalf, we did not deserve such love. But he's given it, and we receive it, and we rejoice in it. We want to share it. And I was reminded of a way that we can share it, and we plan to share it in the fall. We have a fall fest coming up where we want to share the love that we have received with our community. And there are sign-up sheets right here at the Connection Counter where you can go and sign your name in a way that you can serve during our fall fest and help to bring some of that love to our community. So I encourage all of you to uh, check out that connection counter and find a way that you can serve, that you can serve this community and share the love of Christ. Well, hopefully you've already opened up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we are this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. Uh, so if you haven't, open up your Bible, turn on your device. Let's go there. We know that the times in which we live are tumultuous, aren't they? We have a pandemic that has swept the globe. As we prayed this morning, we know Afghanistan has been lost to Islamic militants and Christians are being literally slaughtered right now. And then there are other major conflicts in the world, in Sudan, in Yemen, in Mexico, and in other places. Haiti's been devastated by an earthquake. A tropical storm is bearing down on the northeast. The globe is warming, and our forests are burning, and it seems like the cultural revolution in Western society is swallowing up all shreds of biblical morality. Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes in various places. Plagues, sons turning against their fathers and fathers against their sons. We look at our times and it's easy to think that we are in the end. That these are just the birth pains leading us into a great tribulation and an Armageddon and things so terrible that the world has never seen them before. It's easy to think that these are the end times. Today we're going to talk about the end times, because Peter talks about, writes about the end of all things, which is where we are in 1 Peter 4, 7. And as we look at this one verse this morning, I want you to see that eschatology is important, and I'll tell you what that means in a bit. What is the time frame that Peter is working with when he says the, all, the end of all things is at hand? And then what does he mean? What does Peter mean by the end of all things? And then how should we live with all that in our minds? So those are the four things I want, I want to see this morning, I want to answer this morning. But let's read our verse and then some of the surrounding context. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 11. And this is from the ESV. Bless you. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now we'll pray. Oh God, we thank you for these words and that through them you speak to us right now, even today. God, give us ears to hear your voice and not the voice of any man, your voice. We want to hear from you. We're desperate for the words of life. Give us life through your word. Lord, I pray that my mouth would not err, but speak truth. Lord, we want to see Christ glorified, to have glory and dominion forever and ever, even this morning. We pray it in his name. Amen. So after reading these 11 verses, which we've just read, and, our, and after having worked all the way through this letter from Peter, all the way for these past five months, we know that the end times are not the main focus of Peter. Peter's focus has been the hope that we have in a hostile world and how we are to live in the midst of that hostility. He's giving us hope and then practical application. But here in chapter 4, verse 7, Peter, even here, Peter's focus is still not the end of all things. His focus is really on the ways that we should conduct ourselves in light of that end. Look again at verse 7. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So Peter's word about the nearness of the end serves as an exhortation to be self-controlled, to be sober-minded, and to be prayerful. Therefore, no matter what we think about the end times, it should always be secondary to our pursuit of holiness and prayerfulness. I'm going to say that again. No matter what you think about the end times, it should be secondary to your pursuit of holiness and prayerfulness. We should be pursuing godly thinking, self-control, be diligent in prayer. And we're going to dive more into those things a little later on. So even though Peter is referencing the end of all things as an aside, almost almost in passing, I want to spend a little bit of time focusing on it this morning, partially because we live in times, as I've referenced, we live in times 
where it's easy to think that we're in the end. We live in times that I think produce fear in a lot of people. And then I want to focus on, on this verse partially because we cannot read the Bible, and especially the New Testament, without escaping the language of the end times. It's, it saturates the Bible. And if the Bible speaks about something, especially if it speaks about it often, should we not endeavor to understand it? And not just leave it to, to scholars to tell us what they think, but we ourselves should endeavor to understand it. And so today we look at eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the last things, the end times, you could say. As eschatology looks at cosmic restoration, the new heavens and the new earth, Christ's return, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment, and things related to all of that. So what we're studying today and what Peter is writing about is highly eschatological. Most Christians don't know what to make of eschatology, largely because there's a lot of debates within the church about what's going to happen in the end. And so as a result, it would seem that most Christians, or a lot of Christians, don't place very much emphasis or very much importance on the end times, trusting that it will all pan out in the end. But I think that the Bible teaches us something different. I think that the Bible is bursting with eschatological hopes. Every single New Testament writer has something to say about the last things. And then these eschatological hopes, these things about the end times are meant to inform the way we are to live today. So the writer of Hebrews says that as the end draws near, Christians are not to neglect going to church. James says that, that patience should increase. Jude says that it should build perseverance. And then, of course, Peter says right here, what we're looking at today, that the nearness of the end should lead us to be self-controlled, sober-minded, and prayerful. So these are things that are meant to affect the way we live. Eschatological things. Eschatology is important then. And if it was true then, at the time the New Testament writers were writing, is it not true now? All the more? Should we not all, therefore, be students of eschatology? So it's a good thing to learn from pastors and teachers and scholars about the end times. I mean, you're doing it now, and obviously I'm promoting that, so that's a good thing. But you should not settle merely for the things you've heard and just take it for what's said. Your personal study of Scripture should drive your eschatology. Your time in the Word should inform your eschatology. Not somebody else's timeline, not a, a series of fictional books. Your study of the Word. So after my teaching this morning... My encouragement to you, your homework, is go home and open this and read it and see if what I am saying accords with what you are reading. Now a disclaimer. We have to have disclaimers. It's possible to become hyper-focused on eschatology and lose yourself there. 
And that's something we should avoid as well. And so I want to give you an exa- a couple examples of what this looks like. If you constantly see the Antichrist and the latest dynamic world leader, that's a hyper-focus on eschatology. If you think the mark of the beast is in a vaccine, that's a delusion. If you get excited when calamities afflict the world, hoping for the end times, your focus is wrong. If you think that you can speed Jesus' return through a seven-mountain mandate, your focus is wrong. If you get afraid because the end times are upon us, your focus is wrong. Do you know that both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses were formed out of an over-realized eschatology, a hyper-focus on eschatology? So what we want to do as lovers of Christ and as lovers of, as students of the scriptures is strike that right balance. We don't want to be indifferent. We want to rightly understand eschatological things and and what that means for our lives. We want to truly know what God has to say about the end. That is our hope. We want our lives to be affected by it, but we want to avoid those teachings and voices that are going to lead us down the wrong path, down into delusion. So back in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, there are a number of things that we can learn about the end times, things that are true, things that should inform our thinking and our behavior. Parentheses. Because <laughs> I need to be clear about something. We're entering into some territory that's hotly debated, as, as I've been alluding to. Many Christians think that the New Testament is pointing to a time still in the future, a time that we're still awaiting waiting for a seven-year tribulation, waiting for a beast and his mark, waiting for the abomination of desolations and, and all the rest, that's not my perspective and that's not where I'm, I'm coming from. That's not what I'll be teaching about. When Peter writes that the end of all things is at hand, I think that's what he means and not a time some 2,000 plus years in the future. So to be clear, I'm coming from a post-millennial perspective. There are others who believe, other believers that hold different perspectives, the premillennial perspective and the amillennial perspective, and you don't need to know what those terms mean. I'm going to teach on them more explicitly in the fall when we begin our next sermon series on the book of Revelation. But know that post-mill, pre-mill, a-mill, all three camps, they are gospel-loving, Bible-believing followers of Jesus. If you hold a different view than mine, then I will still love you as a brother or sister in Christ. You can still be a part of this church. We are still one in Christ. Nonetheless, I'm going to try to persuade you. I'm going to try to show you that the post-millennial perspective is the most biblically faithful perspective that exists, just as the others in the other camps would try to do. Okay, close that parentheses. The first thing that we can learn about the end times from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, is the nearness that Peter has in mind. So look again at verse 7. He writes, the end of all things is really far in the future. They're wrong. The end of all things is at hand. The Greek word that is translated is at hand is engidzo. Engidzo. It means near, believe it or not. It means approaching Nigh, it has a sense of urgency, of closeness, of immediacy. And I want to show you an example of this that's not related to the end times in Scripture. Then Jesus came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is engidzo, 
and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is Engidzo. And that reference should be Matthew 26, by the way. So Engidzo means nearness. Here in Matthew 26, Jesus says that his betrayer is at hand, is Engidzo. And he means that he can see Judas and the crowd that's coming with him. They're almost upon him, not standing at his feet, but right there, moments away. So you can see Engidzo means imminent, impending, near, on the verge, without exception in the New Testament. That's how Engidzo is used. And I labor over that single word to help you understand what Peter is saying. He is saying that the end of all things is at hand, is near, is imminent, is almost upon him and his readers. You know, it's not just Peter who says that. That's the testimony of the New Testament. That it's coming, it is near, it is rapidly approaching. The day of the Lord is almost upon us. James writes in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And Engidzo, behold, the judge is standing at the door. It's so important to note that James says the judge is standing at the door. This coming of the Lord that he's talking about is being equated with a judgment. And I think that you'll see that as we move through the sermon. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul implies that the day of the Lord is so near, it might be better not to marry. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For the present form of the world is passing away. Paul and James and Peter, they're talking about the same thing. And this is just a small sampling of the New Testament. The New Testament writers believed that the end times were almost upon them. And honestly, why would they not think this? Jesus told them that within a generation it would happen. So, Jesus was telling the disciples about the end of the age in the Olivet Discourse, which we find in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 19. And there he talks about the the abomination of desolations, the end of all things, the coming of the Son of Man. And right after listing all of that, he gives the disciples this parable. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In less than 40 years, those same disciples are writing the New Testament. Remembering Jesus' words. They can see that in their time, the buds are bursting and the leaves are forming. They know that the judge is at the gate, at the door. 
bringing with him a dramatic ending, bringing a judgment and a destruction. Now let's bounce back to 1 Peter 4.7, where Peter says that the end of all things is at hand. At this point, I hope that we can see that Peter's talking about something very near, something that's about to happen. And so the next question that we need to ask is, what does he mean by the end of all things? And I admit that it sounds a lot like the end of the world. Everything ending. I think that you can draw that conclusion, and a lot of people do draw that conclusion. And that's okay. But I don't believe that that's what Peter means. Because we can look back 2,000 years and see that the world has not ended. So here we come to a dilemma, an interpretive dilemma, and you will either, something will need to change. You will either think that Peter doesn't actually mean it was near, or he doesn't actually mean the end of the world. I do believe that what he was talking about was near to him. And I think that's what all the New Testament writers were, tell, were telling us, that it was near. So I don't think that they were talking about a literal end of the world. So I believe that what was really being prophesied by Peter and Jesus and the rest of the writers was the end of the Mosaic way of relating to God. It was the end of a world that was governed by law. I'll say that again. It was the end of a world that was governed by law. So remember, every New Testament writer, a huge portion of the first century church, and Jesus himself were all Jewish. Their identity, their culture, their worship were rooted in Judaism. It was a fundamental principle of their reality, of their world. And under the Jewish Mosaic Covenant, there's a very specific way for humans to relate to God. It required animal sacrifices. It required circumcision and kosher foods and a temple. The temple, the dwelling place of God on earth, the greatest symbol of God's covenant with Israel, the temple in Jerusalem. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, and people from all over the world would come to see this glorious temple. It was the pride of the Jews. So to the Jews, without these things, without that temple, that was a world they could not imagine. It was inconceivable, unthinkable. But Jesus changed everything. He abolished the animal sacrifices because he himself became our sacrifice once for all. He changed the way we look at food, saying it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Instead of circumcising our bodies, Christ circumcises our hearts by giving us the Holy Spirit. Instead of a temple in Jerusalem, Jesus constructs a temple out of living stones, just as Peter said. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's an order that's changing. 
a new order, a new world. Jesus is establishing this whole new world, a new way for the world to relate to God. And this new order, this new world, is absolutely one of Peter's focuses in this letter. We see it all over his letter. We've been seeing it all over his letter. Again, 1 Peter 3.18, he writes, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Not a system of law, but Christ himself brings us to God. We come to God through Jesus. We receive the blessings of God through Jesus. We find forgiveness, eternal life, and pleasures forevermore through Jesus. He is our sacrifice for sins. He cleanses us and makes us righteous. He brings us to God. The old order is over. We live in a new covenant, written by the blood of Christ. No temple needed. We, we are the temple. But there was this time of overlap about a 40-year period, a one-generation period, where vestiges of that old covenant lingered, remained, just as the new covenant, the kingdom, was growing. And there's this 40-year overlap, vestiges of the old covenant, including the temple, which symbolized the old covenant. They were coming to an end. And the writer of Hebrews has something to say about that. In speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. And what was becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant, vanishing, was not going to be quiet and small. It would happen in destruction and in fire. It would happen in judgment. For God would be judging the Jews and destroying their temple for their rejection of the Messiah. There's a one-week period at the end of Jesus' life where in that time, Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables, calling this temple a den of robbers. And then he curses that temple. He proclaims woes over the religious leaders of that temple. And by the end of the week, the Jews had the Messiah crucified. Yes, God was coming in judgment. Another time during that same week, Jesus walked through the temple with his disciples, and the disciples are looking at this building. They're marveling in it. Do you see these enormous stones? Jesus, look at this. Jesus says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen and and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And that's when Jesus goes on to prophesy about wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and persecutions, famines and false messiahs and apocalyptic destructions. That's when he delivers the Olivet Discourse. All those things, all those things that he prophesied about concerned the Jewish system, the Jewish people, and the Jewish temple. 
He was prophesying the end of the world as they understood it. For the Jew, that was the end of all things. And it happened. Just as he said in 70 AD, 40 years after he prophesied. When Peter wrote his letter, it's somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. The end was very near. Many of the things that Jesus had prophesied about those 40 years ago, back in Matthew 24, they were already happening in Peter's time. The buds were bursting. So, so Peter could rightly say, the end of all things is at hand. Now, in June of 2018, I preached through those prophecies, the Olivet Discourse, as they are found in Mark 13. I went through every prophecy, and I, I tried to show its very specific fulfillment in those years up to and at 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed. Those sermons are all available on the church website, ibcfamily.com. I encourage you, if you're curious, go listen to them. And then when we come to Revelation this fall, we're going to see a lot of this coming back because much of Revelation concerns what happened in 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. So now, once more, back in 1 Peter 4.7. 4, I believe what Peter is talking about is the end of all things as they pertain to the Jewish systems of relating to God. And that end was imminently upon Peter and his readers. Peter's whole letter is therefore proclaiming this, this new order, a new people, and a new world where Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, sits upon the throne at the right hand of the Father. Look again. Look again at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things, from this perspective, has already happened. That Jewish order, when the temple crumbled, so did that order. So what does verse 7 mean for us then? It means that we should be self-controlled, sober-minded, and prayerful. That's what it means. The impending judgment about to fall in Peter's day, that just added urgency to those things. But in no way does that mean that we're now supposed to leave behind holiness and prayerfulness. We are, these are still our Christian mandates no matter where we live or when we live in history. Be sober-minded, self-controlled, and prayerful. Be self-controlled. Otherwise, we will fall into that same flood of debauchery that the enemies of God love. Be self-controlled so that you can glorify God with your body. Be self-controlled because that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then you will be self-controlled. Be sober-minded because we still live in hostile times. Be sober-minded so that you can walk in holiness and in hope, and not waver on those things, and not be deceived. That's what Peter taught us earlier in his letter. He wrote, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, sober-minded, 
Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So be sober-minded. Pursuing the truth of God, thinking seriously about the world around you and the Creator that made it, always setting your mind on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be sober-minded, you're going to need to be in your Bible. Be prayerful, because you have tremendous needs. And there are tremendous needs in the people around you, in the world in which we live. A person who does not pray is a person that does not know God. A self-controlled person prays, for when temptation arises, prayer is needed. A sober-minded person prays so that when the world is filled with pain and confusion, God will grant wisdom to all those who ask for it. Like James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and, he, and it will be given to him. When Peter wrote, the world governed by Mosaic law was ending. How they needed to be self-controlled, sober-minded, and prayerful. In our day, as the kingdom of Christ advances, how we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded and prayerful. No matter where we are in history, and no matter how we interpret that history, Jesus has risen from the grave. We sang about it this morning over and over again. Praise God. Jesus has risen from the grave, and his sacrifice is our forgiveness from sins. His life is our hope. And there will be a day when he returns. And when we see him, we will be like him. This, this is our greatest eschatological hope. That when Christ returns, we will see him and we will be like him. Indeed, eschatology is important. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for the hope that you have set before us. Unshakable, untakeable that we share together, that we share with our brothers and sisters facing down death in Afghanistan, that we will see Christ. And when we see him, we will be like him. Lord, until that day, help us to be self-controlled and sober-minded, devoted to prayer. Help us to see Scripture truly and our world truly to understand them with the wisdom that you have given to us. And protect us, Father, from deception and darkness, from falling back into the ways of our former ignorance. Let us honor you and in every way build your kingdom together that your name would be glorified, that your kingdom would come 
that your will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Oh Lord, hasten that day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.